0: Plato, Gorgias, 480a, Socrates concludes his bout with Polus by reintroducing rhetoric and arguing, not without irony, that it should not be used to evade punishment for one's crimes, but on the contrary, forgetting one's family and friends punished when they have done wrong, and forgetting one's enemies acquitted for any crimes they have committed, because that is worse for them than being punished. Socrates. All right then. If what we've been saying is true, Polus, what particular use is rhetoric? What I'm getting at is this We've reached a point in the discussion where we're bound to say that our chief concern should be to avoid doing wrong because of all the bad consequences it'll bring for us. Do you agree? Polus, yes. Socrates. Whatever person does do wrong, however, or if someone he cares for does, he should go of his own free will to where he'll find the swiftest possible punishment. That is, he should appear before a judge as he would before a doctor, and he should hurry to make sure that his ailment, which is morality, does not become entrenched, rot his mind, and make it incurable. I don't see what else we can say, Polus, as long as our earlier conclusions remain unshaken. If what if we want what we're saying now to be consistent with what we were saying before, we can't put it any other way, can we? Polus, no, of course we can't, Socrates, Socrates. So this rules out using rhetoric to defend wrongs, Polus, whether they're being committed by ourselves, our parents, friends, children or country. We could only find a use for rhetoric, in fact, on the opposite assumption, that our first priority should be to denounce ourselves and then, secondly, any of our family and friends who happen to be doing wrong at any time, and that we should make any crime they commit public rather than concealing it, so that they can pay the penalty for it and get well again. From this point of view, we should require ourselves and everyone else not to flinch, but to put on a brave face and submit courageously and fearlessly to the cautery and surgery of the doctor, as it were. With our sights set on goodness and morality, we should take no account of the pain. We should submit to the lash, if that's what the crime warrants, or to imprisonment, if that's what we deserve. If we're fined, we should pay up. If we've earned exile, we must go. If the penalty is death, we should let ourselves be executed. We should be the first to denounce ourselves and the people close to us, and the use to which we should put rhetoric is to expose their crimes and save them from the worst of all conditions, immorality. Shall we commit ourselves to this view, polis or not? Polis. It sounds extraordinary to me, Socrates, but I suppose to your mind it fits in with what we were saying earlier, Socrates. The only choice we've got, then, is between undermining those earlier conclusions or accepting this view as their logical consequence, yes? Yes, that's right. Now, taking the converse situation and assuming that, in fact, one should harm anyone, an enemy, for instance... Then, as long as you aren't having wrong done to you by giving by a given enemy, which is something to watch out for and he's doing wrong to someone else instead, you have to use all of your verbal and practical resources to try and ensure that he does not get punished and does not appear before a judge and If an enemy of yours does appear there, you have to come up with a way for him to escape and so avoid punishment. If he's stolen a pile of money, you have to make sure he doesn't give it back, but keeps it and spends it in godless immorality on himself and his acquaintances. If death is a penalty for his crime, you have to keep him alive, preferably forever, so that he never dies and his inequity goes on and on. But if you can't manage that, you'd better ensure that he lives in a state of wickedness for as long as possible. These are the kinds of circumstances in which I think rhetoric has some use. I can't see that it's any particular use to a person with no criminal intentions. Maybe it's no use at all in that situation. Nothing came up in the previous discussion to make us think it is. In exasperation, Callicles joins the fray. He cannot believe that Socrates seriously holds these revolutionary views. Socrates replies in metaphorical language that he is certainly voicing his inner convictions and contrasts this with the worldly Callicles' obligation to voice only what accords with the changing whims of the populace. Callicles locates Polus's mistake as conceding that doing wrong is more disgraceful than suffering it. He claims that this view is merely a conviction designed by the weak to suppress the strong, and argues that might is right by natural law. Socrates' aberrant views, he claims, are due to the overindulgence in intellectual pursuits rather than worldly experience. Callicles ends his long and famous speech with a prophetic warning that if Socrates ever finds himself in court, his impracticality will leave him incapable of defending himself. Callicles. Callicles. Tell me, Chirophon, is Socrates serious or is he having us on? Chirophon. I think he's perfectly serious, but there's nothing like asking the man himself. Callicles. All right, I'd certainly love to do that, Socrates. May I ask you a question? Are we to take it that you're serious in all this, or how are you having us on? You see, if you're serious, and if what you're saying really is the truth, surely human life would be turned upside down, wouldn't it? Everything we do is the opposite of what you imply we should be doing, Callicles. So, if there weren't any area, fuck, Socrates, Callicles, if there weren't areas of overlap within all the individual variety of human experience. If a person's experiences were private and couldn't be shared by others, it wouldn't be easy to communicate one's own experience to anyone else. I say this because I have an idea that you and I do in fact share an experience, that of having two loves each. I love... Alcibiades, the son of Clonaeus, and philosophy, and your two loves are the Athenian populace and Demas, son of Prilampolis. Now, you're terribly clever. Of course, but all the same, I've had occasion to notice that you're incapable of objecting to anything your loved ones say or believe. You chop and change rather than contradict them. If in the assembly of the Athenian people refuse to accept an idea of yours, you change tack and say what they want to hear, and your behavior is pretty much the same with that good-looking lad of Perampeles. For instance, you're so incapable of challenging your loved one's decisions and assertions that if anyone were to express surprise at the extraordinary things they cause you to say once in a while, you'd probably respond, if you're in a truthful mood, by admitting that it's only when someone stops them voicing these opinions that you'll stop echoing them. And that's more or less what you're bound to hear from me as well, you know. So, rather than expressing surprise at the things I've been saying, you should stop my darling philosophy voicing these opinions. You see, my friend, she's constantly repeating the views you've just heard from me, and she's far less fickle than my other love. I mean, Alcibiades says different things at different times, but philosophy's views never change, and what you're finding puzzling at the moment is typical of what she says. You were here throughout the discussion, however, so it's up to you either to prove her wrong by showing, as I said a short while ago, that wrongdoing, particularly unpunished wrongdoing, is not absolutely the worst thing that can happen, or to leave this notion unrefuted but if you leave it unrefuted, then I swear to you by the divine dog of the Egyptians that it'll cause friction between you and Callicles. Callicles, there'll be discord within your whole life, and yet, my friend, in my opinion, it's preferable for me to be a musician with an out of tune lyre or a choir leader with a cacophonous choir, and it's preferable for almost anyone in the world, to find my beliefs misguided and wrong, rather than just one p- person, me, to contradict and clash with myself. Callicles, Spoken like a true popular orator, I'd say, Socrates, all that passion, but it's only because what's happened to Polus is exactly what happened to Gorgias, and Polus told Gorgias off for letting you manipulate him into that situation. You ask Gorgias whether he'd teach morality to a hypothetical pupil of his who had come to learn rhetoric and didn't already know what was right and what was wrong. And Gorgias, according to Polus, was embarrassed into saying that he would, because people would typically be offended if anyone said that he couldn't teach it. It was as a result of this concession that he was forced to contradict himself, and Polus went on to point out that this is exactly the situation you relish. He was mocking you then, and I think he was right to do so, but now it's his turn. Exactly the same thing happened to him. To be specific, where I think Polus was at fault was in agreeing with you that doing wrong is more contemptible than suffering wrong. It was this admission of his which enabled you to tie him up in logical knots and muzzle him. He was just too embarrassed to voice his convictions. You pretend that truth is your goal, Socrates, but in actual fact you steer discussions towards this kind of ethical idea. Ideas which are unsophisticated enough to have popular appeal and which deepen entirely on convention, not on nature. They're invariably opposed to each other, you know, nature and convention. I mean, and consequently, if someone is too embarrassed to go right ahead and voice his convictions, he's bound to contradict himself. This, in fact, is the source of the clever but unfair argumentative trick you've devised. If a person is talking from a conventional standpoint, you slip in a question which presupposes a natural point of view. And if he's talking about nature, you substitute convention. On this matter of doing and suffering wrong, for instance, to take The case at hand. Polis was talking about what was more contemptible from a conventional standpoint. But you adopted the standpoint of nature in following up what he said. Because in nature everything is more contemptible if it is also worse, as suffering wrong is. Whereas convention ordains that doing wrong is more contemptible. In fact, This thing, being wronged, isn't within a real man's experience. It's something which happens to slaves who'd be better off dead because they're incapable of defending themselves or anyone else they care for against unjust treatment and abuse. In my opinion, it's the weaklings who constitute the majority of the human race who make the rules. In making these rules, they look after themselves and their own interests, and that's also the criterion they use when they dispense praise and criticism. They try to cow the stronger ones, which is to say, the ones who are capable of increasing their share of things and to stop getting, stop them getting an increased share by saying that to do so is wrong and contemptible and by defining injustice in precisely those terms as the attempt to have more than others. In my opinion, it's because they're second rate and they're happy for things to be distributed equally. Anyway... That's why, la- that's why convention states that any attempt to have a larger share than most people is immoral and contemptible. That's why people call it doing wrong. But I think we only have to look at nature to find evidence that it is right for better to have the greater share than the worse, more capable than less capable. The evidence for this is widespread. Other creatures show, as do human communities and nations, that rights have been determined as follows. The superior person shall dominate the inferior person and have more than him. By what right, for instance, did Xerxes make war on Greece or his father on Scythia? not to mention countless further cases of the same kind of behaviour. These people act, surely, in conformity with the natural essence of right. And yes, I'd even go so far as to say that they act in conformity with natural law, even though they presumably contravene our man-made laws. What do we do with the best and strongest among us? We capture them young, like lions, mould them, and turn them into slaves by chanting spells and incantations over them, which insist that they have to be equal to others, and that equality is admirable and right. But I am sure that if a man is born in whom nature is strong enough, he'll shake off all these limitations, shatter them to pieces, and win his freedom. He'll trample all our regulations, charms, spells and unnatural laws into the dust. This slave will rise up and reveal himself as our master and their natural right will blaze forth. I think Pindar is making the same point as me in the poem where he says, "Law, Lord of all, both gods and men. And law, he continues, instigates extreme violence with a high hand and calls it right. Heracles' deeds are proof of this, since without paying for them. Something like that. I don't know the actual words, but he says that Heracles drove off Geryon's cattle without paying for them and without Geryon giving them to him. Presumably because it was natural justice for him to do so, in the sense that all the belongings of worse, inferior people, not just their cattle, are the property of a man who is better and superior. These are the facts of the matter and you'd appreciate the truth of what I've been saying if only you'd forget about philosophy at last and turn to more important things. The point is, Socrates, it's fine for a person to dabble in philosophy when he's the right age for it, but it ruins him if he demotes too much of his life to it. Even a naturally gifted person who continues to study philosophy far into life is bound to end up without the experience to have gained the accomplishments he ought to have if he's to be a gentleman with some standing in society. In actual fact, philosophers don't understand their community's legal system or how to address either political or private meetings or what kinds of things people enjoy and desire. In short, they're completely out of touch with human nature. When they do turn to practical activity then, in either a private or political capacity, they make ridiculous fools of themselves, just as, I imagine, politicians make fools of themselves when they're faced with your lot's discussions and ideas. In other words, Euripides was right when he said, A person shines at and expands his energy on and devotes most of his waking hours to the activity at which he happens to excel. He shuns and reviles anything he's no good at and sings the praises of his own specialty in a self-regarding way because he thinks this will increase his own prestige. It seems to me that the optimum course is to have a foot in both camps. A certain amount of philosophy helps one to become a cultured person, and it's fine to take it that far. There's nothing wrong with studying philosophy in one's teens, but it's a ridiculous thing for a person still to be studying philosophy even later in life. I feel the same way about doing philosophy as I do about stammering and playfulness. I enjoy seeing a child stammer and play games when he's still young enough for this kind of behaviour to be expected from him. It's pleasantly unaffected, I think, and appropriate to the child's age. When I hear a young child coming out with fluent sentences, however, it seems harsh, grates on my ears, and strikes me as degrading somehow. On the other hand, the phenomenon of a grown man stammering or playing childish games seems ridiculous and immature, and you want to give him a good thrashing. That's how I feel about people who do philosophy as well. I don't mind seeing a young lad take up philosophy. It seems perfectly appropriate. It shows an open mind, I think, whereas neglect of philosophy at this age signifies pettiness and condemns a man to low estimation of his own worth and potential. On the other hand, when I see an older man who hasn't dropped philosophy but is still practicing it, Socrates, I think it is he who deserves a thrashing. You see, as I said a moment ago, Under these circumstances, even a naturally gifted person isn't going to develop into a real man, because he's avoiding the heart of his community and the thick of the agora, which are the places where, as Homer tells us, a man earns distinction. Instead, he spends the rest of his life sunk out of sight, whispering in a corner with three or four young men rather than giving open expression to important and significant ideas. I'm quite fond of you, Socrates, and that's why I react to you in the same way as it happens, that Euripides had Theseus, whose words I quoted moments ago, react to Amphion. I move to copy Theseus talking to his brother, and say, Socrates, You're neglecting matters you should not neglect. Look at the noble temperament with which nature has endowed you. Yet what you're famous for is behaving like a teenager. You couldn't deliver a proper speech to the councils which administer justice or make a plausible and persuasive appeal or put passion into a proposal designed to help someone else. And yet, my dear Socrates, now please don't get cross, it's because I'm fond of you that I'm going to say this. Isn't this a state of embarrassment for you and anyone else who keeps going deeper and deeper into philosophy? The point is that if you or any of your sort were seized and taken away to prison, unjustly accru- accused of some crime, you'd be incapable as I'm sure you're well aware, of doing anything for yourself. With your head spinning and mouth gaping open, you wouldn't know what to say. And if, when you appeared in court, you were faced with a corrupt and unprincipled prosecutor, you'd end up dead. If it was the death penalty he wanted. Oh, Socrates, what a clever discovery this is. It enables you to take a naturally gifted person and ruin him. It makes a person incapable of defending himself or of rescuing himself or anyone else from terrible danger. The best he can hope for is that his enemies will steal all his property and let him live on in his community with no status whatsoever which would make his situation such that anyone could smash him in the face, if you'll pardon the extravagant expression, and not be punished for it. No, Socrates, please take my advice and stop your cross-examinations. Practice the culture of worldly affairs, and take up the kind of occupation which will make your wisdom famous and leave to others the subtle route of spouting drivel or rubbish. These are the right kinds of terms for it, which leaves you living in a deserted house. Don't model your behaviour on these quibblers, but on people who make a living and earn a great many benefits for themselves, not the least of which is prestige. Next section. Socrates professes to be delighted to have found someone with the characteristics which will enable him to test the truth of his beliefs. He first begins to undermine Callicles' Nietzschean individualism by arguing that if it is better to obey the stronger party, then nature decrees that it is better to obey the masses since they are naturally stronger than any individual. Callicles protests, rightly, that by stronger he does not mean more capable of enforcement, and under Socrates' guidance says that the people he has in mind are the cleverer or more astute ones. Some crude prodding from Socrates makes him narrow this down further to those who have applied their intelligence to political matters, and have the courage to ensure that their will is carried out. These are the people who should dominate others, and have the lion's share of wealth, and so on. Begin. Socrates if my mind was made of gold, Callicles, don't you think I'd be delighted to find one of those stones which are used to test gold, especially if it was a really good one? I could touch my mind to it, to see whether it confirmed that my mind had been properly looked after, and then at last I'd know that I was all right and that any further testing was superfluous. Callicles. What's the point of this question of yours, Socrates? Socrates replies, I'll tell you. I think in meeting you I've met with such a godsend. Why? says Callicles. Socrates, if you confirm the beliefs I have in mind, then I can be sure that those beliefs are true. Because it occurs to me that for anyone to be able to test whether or not a person's life is as it should be, he has to have three qualities. These are knowledge, affection, and candor. And you have the complete set. I come across a lot of people, you see, who can't test me because they don't have your knowledge, and then, there's another lot who are knowledgeable enough, but refuse to tell me the truth because they don't care for me as you do. Then there are our two visitors here, Gorgias and Polus, who have the knowledge and are fond of me, but are too easily embarrassed to speak their minds. It's indisputable, surely, that they're riddled with inhibitions. In fact... Their sense of propriety is so acute that they had the goal to contradict themselves in front of a large number of witnesses and to do so on the most important matters in the world. You are the only one with a complete set of qualities, however. You've had what many Athenians will call an adequate education and you're fond of me. What makes me think so? I'll tell you. I'm aware, Callicles, that the four of you, Tysander of Aphidne, Andron, the son of androchon now Societies of Kolagis, and yourself, tell one another your ideas, and I once overheard you discussing the question of how far intellectual studies should be taken. I know the conclusion you reached was that detailed knowledge was undesirable and you advised one another to be alive to the danger of being subtly corrupted by excessive knowledge. And now you're giving me the same advice you gave your closest friends. That's good enough evidence for me. I'm sure you really are fond of me. Finally, it's clear that you're not the kind of person to let any sense of propriety stand in the way of your speaking your mind. It's not just that you yourself have said you're not, but also that your earlier words confirm the truth of this claim. So it's obvious how things now stand. Any idea of mine with which you agree during the course of our discussion will be that token have been adequately tested by us and won't require the application of further tests because it won't have been lack of knowledge or an overdeveloped sense of propriety that made you agree with it. And since you're fond of me, as you yourself admit, you won't have done so deceitfully either. In actual fact, then, Our agreement about a point will be what conclusively demonstrates its truth. What sort of person should one be? What should a person do with his life? And how thoroughly should he devote himself to his chosen occupation? What should he be doing when he's young? And what should he be doing when he's older? The first attempt to find answers to these questions is the finest work in the world, You accuse me of being misguided about these matters. But if I'm going wrong anywhere in my own life, the mistake isn't deliberate, I assure you. It's merely the result of stupidity on my part. So please don't stop the kind of criticism you began. But let me hear a convincing argument about what I ought to do with my life and how to achieve that objective. And if at any time in the future you catch me acting in a way which conflicts with any point on which I agree with you today, you can regard me as a total dimwit and as so completely hopeless that you needn't criticize me ever again. Would you go back to the beginning, though, and tell me again what you and Pindar mean by natural right? Am I right in remembering? That according to you, it's the forcible seizure of property belonging to inferior people by anyone who is superior. It's the dominance of the worse by the better. And it's the unequal distribution of goods so that the elite have more than second-rate people. Helicles. That's the view I expressed earlier, and you'd hear the same from me now. Socrates. Do you distinguish between better and superior? I wasn't clear about this before. Are you describing stronger people as superior and saying that weaker people should be subject to someone who's stronger? I think that was the point of your earlier claim that it's in keeping with natural right for big countries to attack small ones because they're superior and stronger. If so, you're counting on superior. Stronger and better as synonyms? Or is it possible for a better person to be inferior or comparatively weak and for a superior person to be relatively bad? Or do better and superior mean the same thing? Please can you define your terms more precisely and tell me whether or not superior, better, and stronger are synonyms. Callicles. All right, I state unequivocally that they are synonyms. Socrates. Well, isn't it natural for the general populace to be superior to a single individual? After all, as you yourself said a short while ago, it's the masses who make the laws under which an individual lives. Callicles. Of course they're superior to a single person. Socrates. Doesn't it follow that any regulation prescribed by the masses is being prescribed by the superior group? Callicles. Yes. Socrates. It's being prescribed by better people, then, isn't it? You said that to be superior is to be better, didn't you? Yes, says Callicles. Socrates. From the standpoint of nature, then, their regulations are good, since the people who prescribe them are the superior ones. Agreed? Callicles agrees. Socrates says, Well, to cite another of your recent statements, The general populace rules that equal distribution of good is right and that doing wrong is more contemptible than suffering wrong, doesn't it? Is that so or not? Be careful now. We wouldn't want it to be your turn to fall prey to a sense of propriety at this point. Do they or do they not hold that equal rather than unequal distribution is right? And that doing wrong is more contemptible than suffering wrong. Come on, Callicles, please answer. Your agreement would count as confirmation of what I'm saying, because it would be the agreement of someone with insight. Callicles replies, Yes, all right. This is what the general populace rules. Socrates continues. It isn't only convention, then, which states that doing wrong is more contemptible than suffering wrong, or that equality is right. Nature endorses these views too. So it looks as though you were wrong in what you were saying before, and also shouldn't have used the claim that convention and nature are opposites to cast aspersions at me and accuse me of arguing unfairly, in the sense that I know perfectly well that they are opposed. And so, if a person is talking from the standpoint of nature, I steer the argument towards convention. And if he's talking from a conventional standpoint, I steer towards nature. Callicles responds, "'Won't he ever stop talking rubbish?' Tell me, Socrates, doesn't it embarrass you to pick on people's mere words at your age and to count it as a godsend if someone uses the wrong expression by mistake? Of course I mean that superior people are better. Haven't I been telling you all along that better and superior are the same, in my opinion? What else do you think I've been saying? That law consists of the statements made by an assembly of slaves and assorted other forms of human debris who could be completely discounted if it weren't for the fact that they do have physical strength at their disposal. Socrates replies, Oh, I see, Callicles, how clever of you. So that's what you mean. Yes, says Callicles. Socrates continues, Actually, my friend... I've had a vague suspicion all along myself that this or something like it was what you meant by superior. And the reason I've been asking you all these questions is because I'm so keen to turn my vague ideas into a proper understanding of your meaning. Presumably, you don't think that two people are better than one or that your slaves are better than you just because they're stronger than you. Would you start all over again then and tell me what you mean when you call people better, since you don't mean stronger? And please use a gentler form of instruction, my friend. Otherwise, I'll have to leave your school. Callicles responds, You're not being altogether sincere, Socrates. Socrates continues, Yes, I am, Callicles. I swear to you by, by theseus, whom you invoked during your extended assault on me, when it was you who were keeping something back. Anyway, please tell me now, who are the better people, according to you? Callicles says, I mean the elite. Socrates responds, but that doesn't explain anything. Can't you see that it's you who are stuck at the level of mere words? Tell me, what is it that makes people better and superior? Is it greater cleverness or what? Yes, that's it, says Callicles. Definitely. It's greater cleverness, of course. Socrates continues. Here's your position then. A single clever person is almost bound to be superior to 10,000 fools. Political power should be his, and they should be his subjects. And it is appropriate for someone with political power to have more than his subjects. Now, I'm not picking on the same form of words you used, but that, I take it, is the implication of what you're saying of a single individual being superior to 10,000 others. Callicles responds, Yes, that's what I mean. In my opinion, that's what natural right is. For an individual who is better, that is, more clever, to rule over second-rate people and to have more than them. Socrates responds, Stop right there. Let's think about this assertion of yours. Imagine lots of us together in one place, just as we are now, with plenty of food and drink available, and imagine that we're a miscellaneous bunch, in the sense that we cover the whole range from strong to weak. Now, among us is a doctor Let's suppose, in other words, someone who's more clever than the rest of us about food and drink. And it's perfectly plausible to suggest that he'd be stronger than some of us and weaker than others. Since he's cleverer than the rest of us, won't he be better, superior, dietitian? Callicles responds I'd say so. Socrates continues, is he to have more of this food than the rest of us then because he's better than us? Wouldn't it be more appropriate for him to use his position of authority to distribute all the food rather than squandering it on himself? It's true that if he wasted it on feeding his own body, he'd have the greatest share, but he'd also suffer for it. No, he should have more than some and less than others, shouldn't he? Unless he was actually the weakest of us, in which case he should have the smallest share, shouldn't he? Callicles, despite being the best, isn't that so, my friend? Callicles responds, you babble on about food and drink and doctors and so on, but you're missing the point. Socrates asks, isn't your point that a cleverer person is a better person? Well, is it or isn't it? It is, Callicles responds. And that a better person ought to have more? Socrates asks. Callicles responds, yes, but not more food and drink. Socrates continues, I see, more coats perhaps? The best weaver should have a larger coat than anyone else, and should go around dressed in more and more gorgeous coats than anyone else, yes? Callicles responds, What on earth have coats got to do with it? Socrates continues, When it comes to shoes, though, it stands to reason that the largest share has to go to the best person, which is to say, the cleverest person in the field. A shoemaker, Presumably has to walk around wearing larger shoes than anyone else, and more of them too. Callicles asks, what have shoes got to do with anything? You keep coming out with this absurd nonsense. Socrates continues, well, if that kind of case is irrelevant, perhaps you're thinking of someone like a farmer, for instance. He's a fine, clever farmer, and good at his job. So, I suppose he has to have more grain than anyone else and keep as much grain as possible for his own exclusive use. Callicles responds, You're just repeating yourself, Socrates, saying the same things over and over again. Yes, says Socrates, and that's not all, Callicles. I keep saying the same things about the same issues as well. Callicles responds, God, yes, I agree. You simply never stop going on and on about cobblers and fullers and cooks and doctors as if they had the slightest relevance to our discussion. Socrates asks, why don't you tell us what is relevant then? What is it right for a better, cleverer person to have more of? In what respect? Is it fair for him to be up on others? Are you going to refuse to tell us as well as rejecting my suggestions? Callicles responds, but I can only repeat what I've been saying all along. The superior people. I mean, aren't shoemakers or cooks. Above all, I'm thinking of people who've applied their cleverness to politics and to thought about how to run their community well. But cleverness is only part of it. They also have to have courage, which enables them to see their policies through to the finish without losing their nerve and giving up. "'Socrates' responds, "'My dear Callicles, there's a very obvious difference between the charges we're bringing against each other, isn't there? "'Your complaint about me is that, in your opinion, I'm constantly saying the same things, whereas I find the opposite fault in you. "'I think you never say the same things about the same issues.' At one time, you claimed it was extra strength which determined which people were better and superior. Then, later, you said it was extra cleverness. And now you've come up with something else again. Your present idea is that the superior and better are the ones with extra courage. Please, Callicles, let's get this over with. Just tell us what it is that makes people better and superior in your opinion and what they're better and superior at doing. Callicles responds, I've already said that they're clever at politics and they're brave. Political power within communities, should be in the hands of people with these characteristics, and right consists in them, the rulers, having more than others who are their subjects. 491d Socrates raises a question whether Callicles' superior people are in control of themselves as well as of their communities. Callicles has rejected conventional morality, which commends self-control. He thinks that happiness involves self-indulgence. The superior man is precisely the one who has worked his way into a position where he can satisfy any and all of his desires. Socrates states the opposite view at some length and with considerable power, but Callicles continues to maintain his hedonistic position. Socrates, therefore, produces two arguments against the equation of pleasure and good. Socrates, but what are they to themselves, Callicles? What on earth are you getting at? Are they rulers or subjects? What do you mean? Callicles says. I am talking about each one of them ruling himself. Or is there no need for him to rule himself, but only others? Callicles responds. What do you mean, ruling himself? Nothing complicated, just what people usually mean by it. That is, being self-disciplined and in control of oneself and mastering the pleasures and desires which arise within oneself. Callicles responds, what a naive thing to say. By self-discipline, you mean folly. Socrates, I can't believe you said that. I don't see how anyone could fail to appreciate that I mean no such thing. Calicles says, no Socrates, that's exactly what you mean, because human happiness is incompatible with enslavement to anyone. What nature approves and sanctions on the other hand, I'm going to speak bluntly to you now, is this. The only authentic way of life is to do nothing to hinder or restrain the expansion of one's desires until they grow no larger. At which point, One should be capable of putting courage and cleverness at their service and satisfying every passing whim. Now, I don't think most people can do this, and that's why they condemn those who can. They're ashamed, and they try to disguise their failings by claiming that self-indulgence is contemptible, which, as I explained earlier, is an attempt to enslave those who are naturally better than them. And why do they praise self-discipline and justice? Because their own timidity makes them incapable of winning satisfaction for their pleasures. Imagine someone born to inherit a kingdom, or someone who lacks this initial advantage, but has been equipped by nature with the resources for gaining some position of power, for being a dictator, for example, or a political leader. In all honesty, could anything be more shameful, could anything be worse for these kinds of people than self-discipline and justice? They would exchange the freedom to enjoy the good things of life without interference from anyone for the voluntary acceptance of a master, namely the conventions, opinions and strictures of the majority. Under this wonderful regime of justice and self-discipline, how could they possibly be happy? When even if they did have political power, they wouldn't be able to use it to their friend's advantage and to their enemies' disadvantage. No, Socrates, if you want to hear the truth, and you do claim that's your goal, it's that if a person has the means to live a life of sensual, self-indulgent freedom, there's no better or happier state of existence. All the rest of it, the pretty words, the unnatural man-made conventions, they're just all pointless t- trumpery. Socrates replies, thank you, Callicles, for this generous and frank elaboration of your position. You see, what you're doing here is giving a clear account of things which other people think, but are reluctant to voice out loud. Please, I beg you, do all you can to sustain the momentum, until there's really no chance of our mistaking the right way to live. I have a question for you. We shouldn't restrain our desires, you say, if we're going to fulfill our potential, but should let them grow as large as possible, and then do whatever it takes to satisfy them. And this, you claim, is a good state of existence. Is that right? Yes, that's my position, Callicles responds. So the idea that people who need nothing are happy is wrong? Callicles responds, yes, because otherwise there'd be nothing happier than a stone or a corpse. Socrates continues. But the people you are calling happy have a terrifying life as well. The point is, you see, that it wouldn't surprise me if Euripides were true. Who's to say whether life might not be death and death life? Perhaps we really are corpses. In fact, I did once also hear a wise man claim that we are dead and that the body is a tomb and that the part of the mind which contains the desires is in fact characterized by susceptibility and its instability. It was this part of the mind, it seems, which a clever storyteller, from Sicily perhaps or Italy, called a jar, although he derived the name from the fact that it is plausible and persuasive, He also identified fools with non-initiates and said about the part of the mind where the desires are located that in fools, which is to say when this part is in an unrestrained and uncapped state, it is a leaky jar. This is his analogy for his insatiability. His position is the opposite of yours, Callicles. He produces evidence to suggest that there's no one in Hades, by which he means all that is unseen, worse off than these who go about trying to fill one leaky jar with water they bring to it in another equally leaky vessel, a sieve. According to my source, the storyteller's sieve is the mind. He used the image of a sieve to imply that the minds of fools are leaky, in the sense that they're too unreliable and forgetful to prevent things spilling out. This is pretty extraordinary stuff, I suppose, but it does clarify the evidence which I'd like to use to persuade you, if I possibly can, to change your mind. To prefer an orderly life in which one is perfectly content with whatever is to hand, to a self-indulgent life of insatiable desire. Am I getting through to you at all? Instead of your previous view, do you accept that self-discipline makes for greater happiness than self-indulgence? Or will it make no difference at all to what you think, even if I tell you story after story with the same moral? Callicles responds, now you're nearer to the mark, Socrates. Socrates continues, all right, here's another analogy from the same school as the one I've just reported. Would you accept something along the following lines as an image for the different ways our self-controlled person and our self-indulgent person live? Imagine that both of them had a number of jars. The jars belonging to one of them are intact and are filled variously with wine, honey, milk, and so on and so forth. And suppose... That each of these liquids is rare and hard to come by, and that it takes a great deal of strenuous work to get them. Now, once our first man has filled up his jars, he stops channeling the liquids into his jars and gives them no further thought. As far as they're concerned, he can rest easy. The other character, however, is just as capable of getting the liquids, albeit with the same degree of difficulty, but his vessels are cracked and flawed, and he's forced to work day and night at keeping them full, or else suffer terribly. If this is what the two lives are like, then would you say that a life of self-indulgence is happier than one of self-restraint? Does this argument of mine make any impression on you or not? Do you begin to agree that that a life of restraint is better than a life of indulgence? Callicles responds, No, I'm not convinced, Socrates, because the one with the full jars can no longer feel pleasure. And that, as I said a moment ago, is the life of a stone, for a person to be fully satisfied and so to stop feeling either pleasure or distress. An enjoyable life, on the contrary, consists in keeping as much pouring in as possible. Socrates responds, but if there's a lot of stuff pouring in, there has to be a lot of stuff leaving as well, doesn't there? So the jars must be very leaky to let it all out, mustn't they? Yes, Callicles says. Socrates continues, Now you are talking about living like a gully bird, rather than a stone or a corpse. Tell me, though, is being hungry and eating when one's hungry an example of the kind of thing you're thinking of? Yes, Callicles says. And being thirsty and drinking when one's thirsty? Yes, Callicles says, and experiencing desire in it all its other forms too, and being able to feel pleasure as a result of satisfying it, and so to live happily. Socrates replies, Thank you very much. This is an excellent beginning, and I hope you can carry on in the same vein without embarrassment. Actually, I'd better suppress my sense of propriety too, it seems. The main question I want to ask is whether a lifetime spent scratching, itching, and scratching, no end of scratching, is also a life of happiness. Callicles replies, it's incredible, Socrates, how your arguments are designed purely for popular appeal. Socrates replies, well, Callicles, that may explain my success in, in shocking Polus and Gorgias and making them feel embarrassed, but there's no way to shock or embarrass you. You're too brave for that, so please just answer my question. Callicles responds, well, I'd say that a life spent scratching is a pleasant life. Socrates asks, and a happy life too then, since it's pleasant? Yes, says Callicles. Socrates continues, is that the case only if his scratching is restricted to his head, or shall I continue this line of questioning? What would you say, Callicles, if you were faced with the whole sequence of related questions? At the head of the relevant list is the life of a male prostitute. Isn't this a terrible, shocking, miserable life? I can't believe you'd go so far as to claim that the endless satisfaction of his needs will make him happy. Callicles says, Doesn't it embarrass you to steer the argument into this distasteful direction, Socrates? Socrates responds, Is it me who steers at their Calicles, or is this the direction prompted by the reckless assertion that people are happy if they're feeling pleasure, no matter what the source of pleasure, that is, by the failure to distinguish between good and bad pleasure? Could you tell me once and for all whether, in your opinion, the pleasant and the good are the same, or whether there's even one pleasure which is not good callicles responds i can't say they're different and still be consistent so i'll say that they're the same socrates responds you're breaking your original promise callicles what if what you say contradicts what you really think your value as my partner in searching for the truth will be at an end callicles says, you don't always say what you think either, Socrates. Socrates responds, well, if that's true, it only makes me just as wrong as you. But are you really sure, Callicles, that unrestricted pleasure is good? If it is, all those shocking consequences I hinted at a moment ago will obviously follow, and a lot more besides. Callicles says, So you say, Socrates. Socrates asks, But you're committed to this view, are you, Callicles? Yes, Callicles replies. Socrates asks, So we can set about our discussion on the assumption that you're serious? We certainly can, Callicles responds. Socrates continues, All right then, since that's how you feel, here's something for you to sort out. There's something you call knowledge, presumably. Yes, Callicles responds. Socrates continues. And weren't you talking a short while ago about a situation in which both knowledge and courage were involved at once? Yes, I was, Callicles says. Socrates continues. It's because you think of courage as being different from knowledge that you spoke of them as two separate qualities, surely? Certainly, Callicles says. Socrates asks, Now, do you think pleasure is the same as knowledge, or different? Callicles responds, What an intelligent question. It's different, of course. And if is courage different from pleasure as well? asks Socrates. Of course, Callicles responds. Socrates continues, all right, let's have it on record that Callicles of Achaene claims that pleasure and good are identical, but that knowledge and courage are different from each other and from goodness. Callicles asks, and what shall we say about Socrates of Alopeci? Does he or does he not agree with Callicles? Socrates responds, He does not. What's more, I think that after proper reflection on his own state, Callicles will disagree too. Here's a question for you. Wouldn't you say that people who live well are in the opposite situation from those who live badly? Yes, Callicles says. Socrates continues, Now, if these two states are opposed to each other, then the same principle which applies to health and illness is bound to apply to them as well, isn't it? I mean, it isn't possible for a person to be healthy and ill at the same time, or to get rid of health and sickness at the same time. What do you mean? Calicles asks. Socrates responds, well, any part of the body you want to take should illustrate my point, if you think about it. For instance, if you know that a person's eyes can be in a diseased state and we say he's got an eye infection. Of course, Callicles says. Socrates asks, he hasn't also got healthy eyes at the same time, has he? Of course not, Callicles says. Socrates asks, what about when he gets rid of his eye infection? Is he also at that point getting rid of his eyes health too? Does he end up losing both at once? Certainly not, Callicles says. Because that's too incredible and preposterous thing to happen, isn't it? Socrates says. Exactly, Callicles responds. What he does, surely, is gain and lose each of them alternately. Doesn't he? Callicles agrees. And doesn't the same principle apply to strength and weakness as well? Callicles agrees. And to speed and slowness, Callicles agrees. Here are some other opposites, things which are good and things which are bad, the state of happiness and the state of unhappiness. What about each of them? Does one alternately gain and lose each of these pairs? No doubt about it, Callicles says. Socrates continues, wherever we find a person losing and keeping things at the same time, then, we'll know that we're not faced with the good and the bad. Do you agree with this? Please think carefully before answering. Callicles answers, yes, I agree without any reservation at all. Socrates continues. Now, let's return to a point that came up earlier. When you mentioned hunger, were you thinking of it as a pleasant or an unpleasant experience? I mean, the actual hunger. Callicles responds I'd say that it was unpleasant. When a hungry person eats, however, that's pleasant. Socrates agrees. I see what you mean, but the actual hunger. In itself is unpleasant, isn't it? Yes, Callicles agrees. Thirst too? Definitely, Callicles agrees. Shall I go on with these questions? Or do you agree that need and desire are unpleasant in all of their manifestations? Yes, I do, Callicles agrees. Don't bother with the questions. Socrates continues All right, now your position is that a thirsty person finds drinking pleasant, isn't it? Callicles says yes. When you say thirsty in this situation, you mean feeling distress, I imagine, don't you? Callicles says yes. Whereas drinking, which is satisfying a need, is also a pleasure. Callicles says yes. Now, your position is that the pleasant component of this situation is due to the drinking, isn't it? Callicles says yes. It's pleasant for a thirsty person to drink anyway. Callicles agrees. Which is to say, for someone who's feeling distress. Callicles says yes. Do you realize what the consequence is? When you say that a thirsty person is drinking, you're saying that someone who's feeling distress is feeling pleasure at the same time. Don't we find that it's the same aspect of oneself? I don't think it makes any difference whether one thinks of this as the mind or the body. That is being affected simultaneously by these two feelings. Am I right or not? You are, says Callicles. Well now, according to you, it's impossible to live well and at the same time to live badly. Callicles agrees. You've agreed with me, however, that pleasure and distress can coincide. Callicles says, Yes, I suppose they do. Socrates continues, It follows that to feel pleasure is not the same as to live well, and that to feel distress is not the same as to live badly, and therefore the pleasure and the good are different. Callicles responds, I don't know what to make of these clever arguments of yours, Socrates. Socrates replies, you do, Callicles, you're only pretending not to. Now press on, there's further to go. Callicles asks, why do you persist in this nonsense? Socrates responds, so that when you scold me, you can tell me how clever you're being. Isn't it the case that one's thirst and the pleasure derived from drinking stop at the same time? I don't understand you, Callicles says. Gorgias adds, Don't do that, Callicles. Please answer him. We'd appreciate it too, because without your reply, the discussion will be incomplete. Callicles responds, But all these futile little questions are typical of the way Socrates tries to prove people wrong, Gorgias. Gorgias responds, Why should that matter to you? In any case, it's not up. You to assess their value like that, Callicles. Just let Socrates test your views any way he wants. Callicles responds Go on then, if that's what Gorgias wants, ask your lowly little questions. Socrates continues It's all right for you, Callicles, you happy man. You've been initiated into the higher mysteries before the lower ones. I didn't think it was allowed. Anyway, could you resume from where we left off and tell me whether one's thirst and one's pleasure stop at the same time? Callicles says yes. And don't hunger and other forms of desire stop at the same time as the pleasure stops too? Calicles says yes. So we lose feelings of distress and feelings of pleasure simultaneously, don't we? Callicles says yes. You've agreed, however, that we don't lose things which are good and things which are bad simultaneously. Callicles agrees. Because the upshot is that good things aren't the same as pleasant things, and bad things aren't the same as unpleasant things either. You see, we can lose one pair simultaneously, but not the other. And that means that they are different. How could things which are good be the same as things which are pleasant then? How could bad things and unpleasant things be the same? But I don't think this argument of mine has won your agreement. So here's an alternative approach you might prefer. What do you think about this? You describe people as good looking if they have good looks. And by the same token, isn't it the possession of good qualities that enables you to refer to certain people as good? Callicles says yes. Now don't you call fools and cowards good? No, I don't suppose you do, because not long ago you were reserving the term for brave, clever people. Aren't they the ones you call good? Callicles says yes. Well, do foolish children enjoy themselves in your experience? Callicles says yes. And what about foolish adults? Have you ever seen them enjoying themselves? I suppose so, Callicles says. But what difference does it make? Socrates responds, Oh, no difference. Just answer the question. All right, yes, I've seen that, Callicles says. Socrates responds, And do intelligent people find things pleasing and distressing in your experience? Callicles says yes. Do clever people or thoughtless people experience more pleasure and distress? Callicles responds, I don't think there's much to tell between them. Socrates responds, Well, that'll do for me. Now, have you ever come across cowards during a military compa- campaign? Callicles says yes. And which lot struck you as being more pleased when the enemy forces were falling back? The cowards or the brave men? Callicles responds, I think they were both pleased. The cowards marginally more so, perhaps. Socrates responds, That doesn't matter, but cowards feel pleasure too, do they? Callicles says, Yes. As do thoughtless people, apparently. Callicles says, Yes. And when the enemy was advancing, was it only the cowards who were upset? Or were the brave ones too? Both were, Callicles says. To the same degree? The cowards suffered more intensely, I suppose. Socrates asks, And when the enemy was falling back, they were more pleased? Maybe, says Callicles. Socrates continues, So what you're saying is that although thoughtless people and clever people... And cowards and heroes feel pleasure and distress to almost the same degree, cowards experience these feelings more intensely than heroes. Callicles says yes. But it's the clever ones and the heroes who are good, whereas the cowards and the fools are bad. Isn't that so? Callicles says yes. Doesn't it follow that there's little to tell between good people and bad people in terms of how much pleasure and distress they experience? Callicles says yes. Are good people and bad people almost equally good and bad then? Or is it even the case that bad people are more good, in fact? Callicles responds, I haven't the faintest idea what you mean. Socrates continues haven't you didn't you agree that good people are good because they possess good qualities and bad people are bad because they possess bad qualities and aren't you also claiming that there's no difference between good and pleasure or between bad and distress callicles says yes i am so any pleasant experience is by that token the possession of the good that is pleasure isn't it Callicles says yes. Their possession of this good quality then makes people who are feeling pleasure good, doesn't it? Callicles says yes. And unpleasant experiences are the possession of bad qualities or feelings of distress? Yes, Callicles responds. And it's the possession of bad qualities which makes bad people bad, isn't it? Or have you changed your mind about this? No, I haven't, says Callicles. So anyone who feels pleasure is good, and anyone who feels distress is bad. Callicles says yes. And aren't people good and bad to greater or lesser or roughly equal degree, depending on whether they experience feelings to a greater or lesser or roughly equal degree? Callicles says yes. And didn't you say that fools and cowards experience roughly the same intensity of pleasure and distress as clever people and heroes, or even that cowards feel more, in fact? Callicles says yes. Could you help me work out the consequences of our position? I mean, it's worth repeating and reconsidering valuable points two and even three times, as the proverb puts it we're saying that people with intelligence and courage are good aren't we callicles said yes and that fools and cowards are bad callicles says yes aren't we also claiming that people who feel pleasure are good callicles says yes and that people suffering distress are bad callicles says yes and that while there's little to tell between good people and bad people in terms of how much pleasure and distress they experience bad people might experience more. Callicle says yes. This means that there's little to tell between good people and bad people in terms of how good and how bad they are, doesn't it? And that, if anything, bad people are better than good people. Apart from what we've already said, doesn't the idea that pleasure and good are the same have these additional consequences? I don't see how you can avoid this conclusion, Callicles. Do you? 499b. Callicles shifts from commending mere quantity of pleasure to admitting that there are qualitative differences between pleasures. This allows Socrates to reintroduce the distinction between means and ends. He argues that better pleasures are those whose longer term effects are good, which in turn confirms that pleasure is not the good, since the good is something pleasure can aim for. The good life then becomes a matter of foresight, not immediate feeling response, and therefore, arguably requires expertise. Socrates reminds Callicles of his earlier distinction between empirical knacks, whose goal is pleasure, and true branches of expertise, whose goal is the good. He counts rhetoric as a knack and criticises all the great figures of Athenian history as mere flatterers of populace before sketching an outline of what true rhetoric would aim to do for its audience. In short, the expertise required to enable someone to live the good life is not the rhetoric, gorgias practices and teachers. Callicles begins, I've been listening to you for quite a while now, Socrates. I've been saying yes on cue, but what I've been thinking about is the adolescent delight you take in seizing on any concession someone makes to you, even if he means it as a joke. Do you really think that I or anyone else would deny that there are better and worse pleasures? Socrates replies, oh no, you're behaving terribly, Callicles. First you claim that such and such is the case, and then that it isn't the case. This is the way you'd treat a child, and it's so dishonest. I set out on this discussion in the belief that you were my friend, and so wouldn't deliberately deceive me. But as it turns out, I was wrong, and now I've got to make the best of my situation, as the old saying goes, and accept this offering of yours. It seems that what you're saying now is that there are better and worse pleasures. Is that right? Callicles says yes. Well, beneficial pleasures are good and harmful ones are bad, aren't they? Callicles says yes. Aren't they beneficial if they have a good effect and are harmful if they have a bad effect? Callicles says yes. Are you thinking, for example, of the phys- physical pleasures of eating and drinking that we were talking about not so long ago? Of how some of them make the body healthy or strong or good in some other way? Would you call pleasures of this kind good and those which produce the opposite results bad? Calicles says, yes. Does the same go for unpleasant experiences? Are some good and some bad? Callicles says, yes. Good experiences are the ones we should be going for, shouldn't we? Whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, they're what we should be concerned with, aren't they? Callicles said, yes. And hadn't we better avoid bad ones? Callicles says, yes. Yes, because Polis and I decided, as you may remember, that the good in some form or other should be the reason for doing anything. Do you agree? Do you think, as Polis and I do, that all activity aims at the good and that the good should not be a means toward anything else, but should be the goal of every action? Are you going to support us and make it three? Callicles says yes. It follows that the good in some form should be the goal of pleasant activities, as much as of any other kind of activity, rather than pleasure being the goal of good activities. Callicles says yes. Now, is just anyone competent to separate good pleasures from bad ones, or does it take an expert? Callicles says it takes an expert. I think we'd better remind ourselves of another view I happened to express while talking to Polus and Gorgias. As you may remember, I held that there are some procedures which are restricted to pleasure. That's all they have to offer, and which fail to distinguish between better and worse. But I also held that there are other procedures which do know what's good and what is bad, I propose cookery as a typical example of a procedure which is concerned with pleasure. I called it a knack rather than an area of expertise. And medicine as a typical example of an area of expertise, which is concerned with what is good. Now, for God's sake, Callicles, and for the sake of our friendship, please don't think it's all right for you to play games with me and answer my questions any old how without caring whether you contradict what you really think. And at the same time, please don't treat what you hear from me as if I were playing games with you. Are you somehow unaware that there's nothing which even a relatively unintelligent person would take more seriously than the issue we're discussing? The issue of how to live one's life, The life you're recommending to me involves the manly activities of addressing the assembled people, rhetorical training, and the kind of political involvement you and your sort are engaged in. But is that the right way to live? Or is this philosophical life of mine better? And if so, what makes it better? So perhaps it would be best for us to distinguish these two ways of life along the lines I tried out just now. And then, once we've agreed that they're different, we should try, if there really are two ways of life, to see how they differ and which of them is the one to follow. Anyway, may you may not yet have understood my point. Kellically says, no, I haven't understood. Socrates continues, all right, I'll try to explain myself better. You and I have already agreed that there's good and there's pleasure and that the good and the pleasant are are not identical. We've also agreed that there are certain procedures and processes for obtaining each of these two ways of pursuing respectively pleasure and the good. But before I go any further, I'd better find out whether or not you accept this, do you? Callicles says yes. All right then, I wonder whether you'll also go along with the idea I suggested to our friends here. That is, I wonder if you thought at the time that I was right. I told them that to my mind, cookery was a knack rather than a branch of expertise as medicine is. And I went on to say that one of these processes, medicine in fact, had considered both the nature of the object it looks after and the reasons for its actions, and could therefore explain its results. Pleasure, however, is the sole point of one's attention. There's absolutely no expertise involved in the way it pursues pleasure. It hasn't considered either the nature of pleasure or the reason why it occurs. It's a completely irrational process. It hasn't itemized things at all, so to speak. All it can do is remember a routine which has become ingrained by habituation and past experience. And that's also what it relies on to provide us with pleasant experiences. Do you think this is a satisfactory account? That's the main question. But then I also want to ask whether you think there are practices whose province is of the mind rather than the body, and which are analogous in the sense that while some of them involve expertise and work out in advance what will be best for the mind, others don't care about that, and as was the case with cookery, have restricted their thinking to how the mind gets pleasure. Not only have they not given any consideration to whether there might be qualitative differences between pleasures, they're simply not interested in anything except gratifying the mind, whether this is to its disadvantage or advantage. The point is, Callicles, that I do think these practices exist, and I maintain that pandering like this to the pleasures of the body, or the mind, or whatever, without taking into consideration the question of better and worse, is flattery. What about you? Do you endorse this view of mine, or disagree? Callicles replies, Oh, I agree. As a favor to Gorgias, and so that the discussion isn't left incomplete. Socrates asks, Now, can this only happen to one mind at a time rather than to two or more? Callicles responds, No, it can happen to two or more. Socrates responds, So. If there's a whole crowd of people, it's possible to gratify all their minds at once without considering what's best for them. Is that right? Callicles says, I'd say so. Socrates asks, can you tell me which activities have this effect? Perhaps it would be better for me to ask you specific questions and for you to tell me whether or not you think the activity I've mentioned does have this effect. Is that all right with you? Let's start with playing the reed pipe. Do you think it belongs to this category, Callicles? Is its sole purpose to give us pleasure without worrying about anything else? Callicles says yes. And so on for all related activities, like playing the kithara in competitions. Callicles says yes. Socrates continues. And what about training choirs to think sing dithyrambic poetry you've composed? Don't you think it belongs here? I mean, do you think Sinisees, the son of Meles, is the slightest bit interested in having his words improve his audience rather than in finding a way to gratify a packed theatre? Callicles responds, "Well, it's clear, at least in the case of Synesias, that he's only interested in giving pleasure." Socrates. Socrates asks, "What about his father, Melis? Do you get the impression that when he's composing music for the kithara, his objective is to maximize his audience's moral welfare?" Actually, it might be truer to say, in his case, that he doesn't even aim at maximising their pleasure, since they find his singing offensive. But anyway, what do you think about kithara music and dithyrambic poetry in general? Don't you think they were invented to give pleasure? Callicles says yes. What about that grand and awesome pursuit, the composition of tragedies? What is the object of its efforts? Do you think the point of its earnest endeavours is merely to please the audience? Or does it also struggle to avoid expressing sentiments for which all their delightful charm are morally wrong? And to include in its speeches and songs sentiments which are actually harsh and beneficial, whether or not people enjoy hearing them. Which of these two purposes do you think tragedy is designed for? Callicles responds, Well, there can be no doubt about that, Socrates. It's more interested in pleasure than gratifying the audience. Socrates asks, And isn't that more or less how we described flattery a short while ago, Callicles? Callicles says, Yes. Next, suppose poetry were stripped of its music, its rhythm, and its metre. We'd be left with words, wouldn't we? Callicles says yes. Words spoken, in fact, before a large crowd, before the assembled people. Poetry is a kind of popular oratory, then. And popular oratory is just another way of saying rhetoric. I mean, don't you think poets are rhetoricians of the theatre? Callicles says yes. So we're faced here with a kind of rhetoric which is addressed to the assembled population of men, women, and children all at once, slaves as well as free people, and it's a kind of rhetoric we find we can't approve of. I mean, we did describe it as flattery. Callicles says yes. All right, what are we to make of the kind of rhetoric which is addressed to the Athenian assembly and to the assemblies of the other states, which are attended by free male citizens? Do you think that when rhetoricians speak, they want what's best for their audience? Do you think they intend their speeches to have the effect of perfecting their fellow citizens? Or do you think that they're really no different from poets? In other words, that their objective is the gratification of their fellow citizens, and that the common good means less to them than their own private concerns? Isn't there... To your mind, something patronizing about the way they restrict their dealings with the members of these assemblies to trying to gratify them, and don't take the slightest interest in whether or not they're made better or worse people by the process. Callicles responds, There's no simple answer to that question as there was to the other one. There are speakers who are motivated by concern for their fellow citizens, but there are also other speakers who answer to your description. Socrates continues, that's all I need. If the activity is twofold like that, then one of its two aspects is presumably flattery and popular oratory of the contemptible sort, while the other is the admirable procedure of trying to perfect the minds of one's fellow citizens and of struggling to ensure that the speeches one delivers have the highest moral content, whether or not it makes people enjoy listening to them. But you've never come across this latter kind of rhetoric. If you can think of any rhetorician who fits this description, why don't you tell me his name? Callicles responds, I certainly can't think of any contemporary rhetoricians anyway. Socrates continues, Well, can you name a single rhetorician from the past who's supposed to have been instrumental from his very first public speech onwards in changing the Athenian people from the terrible state they'd been in before to a better one? If you can, please do so, because I don't know who it is. Callicles responds, but what about Themistocles? People say he was a good man, don't they? And then there are Simon and Miltiades and Pericles, who's only recently died, and you actually heard him speak. Yes, Callicles, Socrates responds. They were good men, all right, that is if your earlier description of goodness was true and it consists in satisfying your own and others' desires. But if that's not the case, if there's some truth in the conclusions of the subsequent discussion led us inexorably towards, and we should satisfy only those desires whose fulfillment makes us better people, not those whose fulfillment makes us worse, And we decided that this whole area was a matter for expertise. Well, can you say that any of the men you mentioned were good in that sense? Callicles says, I don't know what to say. And Socrates continues, you'll come up with something if you search in the right way. Let's take an unhurried look then and see whether any of them were good in that sense. Now, speeches delivered by a good man, someone who wants what's best for his audience, aren't aiming but have a purpose, don't they? It's the same with all other craftsmen too. Each of them bears in mind his particular task so he doesn't select and apply his materials aimlessly, but with the purpose of getting the object he's making to acquire a certain form. If you need examples, look at painters, builders, shipwrights, any craftsmen you like, in fact. Each of them organises the various components he works with into a particular structure and makes them accommodate and fit one another until he's formed the whole into an organised and ordered object. That's what all craftsmen do, including the ones we were talking about not long ago, who deal with the human body, trainers and doctors, I mean. They order and organize the body in a way. Are we in agreement on this or not? Callicles says, yes. So it takes organization and order to make a house good, does it? And without these qualities, any house is worthless. Callicles says, yes. And the shame goes for ships and for our bodies too, we're saying. Callicles says yes. And what about the mind? Can a disorganized mind be a good mind, or does it take organization and order to make the mind good as well? Callicles responds, We have to think so. The preceding argument leaves us no choice. Socrates then asks, Now, what do we call the effect of organization and order on the body? I suppose you mean health and fitness, Callicles says. Yes, Socrates says. Next, then, what do we call the effect of organization and order on the mind? What's the equivalent term to health in this sense? Can you come up with one? Why don't you tell us, Socrates? All right, I will, if that's what you'd prefer. If you think I'm right, please tell me, but if you think I'm wrong, don't let me get away with it. Show me why I'm wrong. In my opinion, we describe the processes which organize the body as healthy because they cause health and whatever else constitutes a good physical state. Is that right? And we describe the processes which organise and order the mind as law or convention because they make the mind law-abiding and orderly, which is to say they imbue the mind with justice and self-control. Agreed? So these are the qualities which that Excellent rhetorical expert of ours will be aiming for in all his dealings with people's minds, whether he's talking or acting or giving or taking. He'll constantly be applying his intelligence to find ways for justice, self-control and goodness in all its manifestations to enter his fellow citizens' minds, and for injustice, self-indulgence, and badness in all its manifestations to leave. You see, Callicles, what's the point of giving someone whose body is ravaged by disease lots of wonderfully pleasant food or drink or whatever, if that's not going to increase his chances of getting better in the slightest, or, on the contrary, is even, as an impartial view suggests, going to decrease them? Am I right? Yes, I can't see that life is worth living if a person's body is in a terrible state. He's bound to have a terrible life, isn't he? Calicles says yes. Now, isn't it normal medical practice to allow a healthy person to satisfy his desires by eating or drinking as much as he wants when he's hungry or thirsty, for instance, but almost never to let a sick person have his fill of what he desires? Do you agree with me about this? Callicles says yes. The same goes for the mind, doesn't it, Callicles? as long as it's in a bad state which is to say ignorant, self-indulgent, immoral, irreligious, we must prevent it from doing what it desires and have it keep strictly to a regimen which will make it better because that's actually better for the mind. Now, to prevent it from doing what it desires is to discipline it, wouldn't you say? Callicles says yes so discipline is better for the mind than indulgence you were recommending not too long ago 505c faced with defeat callicles resorts once more to sullen abuse socrates continues the argument alone the good life and human happiness depend crucially he argues, on self-discipline. In fact, the whole universe can only function well as an orderly whole. The arguments he has been putting forward and this cosmic perspective provide the justification for the revolutionary view which provokes Callicles' entry into the discussion, that doing wrong is worse than suffering it. Callicles begins, I don't know what you're going on about, Socrates. You'd better find someone else to answer your questions. Socrates says, our friend here can't stand people doing him good. In fact, he can't stand what we've been talking about at all, being disciplined. Callicles responds, actually, these arguments of yours don't interest me in the slightest. And I've only been answering your question for Gorgias' sake. Socrates says, well, what shall we do then? Are we going to break off mid-discussion? That's up to you, Callicles says. Socrates continues, people say it's wrong to leave even stories unfinished though. A story needs a head on it, they say, otherwise it goes around headless. So please help our discussion get ahead by answering the rest of my questions. Callicles responds, You're a bully, Socrates. My advice to you would be to forget about the discussion or at least find someone else to talk to. Socrates asks, Any volunteers? No. Let's not leave the argument unfinished. Callicles says, Couldn't you complete the argument yourself? Couldn't you just talk to yourself and answer your own questions? Socrates responds, Then I'd really have to be, as Epicharmus says capable of saying all alone what it took two men to say before. By the looks of it, though, I don't have any choice in the matter. All right, let's do it that way. Once knowledge of what is and isn't true in these matters is out in the open, we'll all benefit equally. So I think we should all try to be the first to get there. I'll tell you how I think the argument goes on. Then, but it's up to you, to challenge me and show me where I'm wrong if any of you get the impression that I'm failing to recognize mistakes in my own thinking. The point is, you see, that I certainly don't speak as an expert with knowledge. I look into things with your help, and this means that if someone disputes something I've been saying and seems to me to be making a good point, I'm the first to admit it. But there's no point in me saying all this unless you think we ought to finish the argument. If you don't want to carry on, let's leave it there and go home. Gorgias responds, Well, I, at any rate, don't think we ought to go home yet, Socrates. I'd like you to complete the argument, and I get the impression everyone else wants you to as well. In fact, for my part, I'd like to hear you round the argument off by yourself. Socrates continues My own personal preference though Gorgias would have been for our friend Callicles to have gone on talking with me until I'd repaid, repaid him for the Thysus's speech with Amphion's Anyway even if you're not prepared to help me finish our discussion Callicles you must at least take me up on anything you hear from me which strikes you as incorrect And if you do prove me wrong, I won't get cross with you as you did with me. No, I'll make sure the public register lists you as my greatest benefactor. Here goes then. I'll review the argument so far. Is the pleasant the same as the good? No, they are different. Callicles and I agree on that. Should the good be the reason we do pleasant things, or the pleasant be the reason we do good things? The good should be the reason we do pleasant things. Isn't it the quality of being pleasant which makes us enjoy things, and the quality of being good which makes us good? Yes. Now what does it take to be a good human being? What does it take to be a good anything, in fact? It always takes a specific state of goodness, doesn't it? I don't see how we can deny that, Callicles. And whether we're talking about a good artifact, a good body, a good mind for that matter, or a good creature, what it takes for these states of goodness to occur in an ideal form is not chaos, but organisation and perfection, and the particular branch of expertise whose province the object in question is, right? In every case, then, a good state is an organized and orderly state, isn't it? So, a thing has to be informed by a particular orderly structure, the structure appropriate to it to be good, doesn't it? I think so. Doesn't it follow that a mind possessed of its proper structure is better than a disordered mind? It's bound to be. But a mind possessed of orderly structure is an orderly mind, isn't it? And an orderly mind is a self-disciplined mind. From which it follows that a self-disciplined mind is a good mind. Now, I can't see anything wrong with this argument, Callicles. but if you can, please tell me what it is. If a self-disciplined mind is good, then a mind in the opposite state is bad. In other words, an undisciplined and self-indulgent mind is bad, yes? Now, a disciplined person must act in an appropriate manner towards both gods and his fellow human beings, because inappropriate behaviour indicates a lack of self-discipline. Yes, that's bound to be so. Well, when appropriate is used of the way we relate to our fellow human beings, it means just. And when it's applied to the way we relate to the gods, it means religious. And of course, anyone who acts justly and religiously is a just and a religious person. He's also bound to have courage, because a disciplined person doesn't choose inappropriate objects to seek out or to avoid. No, he turns towards or away from events, people, pleasures and irritations as and when he should, and steadily endures what he should endure. It follows, Callicles, that because a self-disciplined person Plato, Gorgias, 480a Socrates concludes his bout with Polus by reintroducing rhetoric and arguing, not without irony, that it should not be used to evade punishment for one's crimes, but on the contrary forgetting one's family and friends punished when they have done wrong, and forgetting one's enemies acquitted for any crimes they have committed, because that is worse for them than being punished. Socrates. All right then. If what we've been saying is true, Polus, what particular use is rhetoric? What I'm getting at is this. We've reached a point in the discussion where we're bound to say that our chief concern should be to avoid doing wrong because of all the bad consequences it'll bring for us. Do you agree? Polus? yes. Socrates, what if a person does do wrong, however, or if someone he cares for does? He should go of his own free will to where he'll find the swiftest possible punishment. That is, he should appear before a judge as he would before a doctor, and he should hurry to make sure that his ailment, which is morality, does not become entrenched, rot his mind, and make it incurable. I don't see what else we can say, polus, as long as our earlier conclusions remain unshaken. If what if we want what we're saying now to be consistent with what we were saying before, we can't put it any other way, can we? Polus? no, of course we can't, Socrates. Socrates. So this rules out using rhetoric to defend wrongs, Polus, whether they're being committed by ourselves, our parents, friends, children or country. We could only find a use for rhetoric, in fact, on the opposite assumption, that our first priority should be to denounce ourselves and then, secondly, any of our family and friends who happen to be doing wrong at any time, and that we should make any crime they commit public rather than concealing it, so that they can pay the penalty for it and get well again. From this point of view, we should require ourselves and everyone else not to flinch, but to put on a brave face and submit courageously and fearlessly to the cautery and surgery of the doctor, as it were. With our sights set on goodness and morality, we should take no account of the pain. We should submit to the lash, if that's what the crime warrants, or to imprisonment, if that's what we deserve. If we're fined, we should pay up. If we've earned exile, we must go. If the penalty is death, we should let ourselves be executed. We should be the first to denounce ourselves and the people close to us, and the use to which we should put rhetoric is to expose their crimes and save them from the worst of all conditions, immorality. Shall we commit ourselves to this view, polis or not? Polis. It sounds extraordinary to me, Socrates, but I suppose to your mind it fits in with what we were saying earlier, Socrates. The only choice we've got, then, is between undermining those earlier conclusions or accepting this view as their logical consequence, yes? Yes, that's right. Now, taking the converse situation and assuming that, in fact, one should harm anyone, an enemy, for instance... Then, as long as you aren't having wrong done to you by giving by a given enemy, which is something to watch out for, and he's doing wrong to someone else instead, you have to use all of your verbal and practical resources to try and ensure that he does not get punished and does not appear before a judge. and if an enemy of yours does appear there, you have to come up with a way for him to escape and so avoid punishment. If he's stolen a pile of money, you have to make sure he doesn't give it back, but keeps it and spends it in godless immorality on himself and his acquaintances. If death is a penalty for his crime, you have to keep him alive, preferably forever, so that he never dies and his inequity goes on and on. But if you can't manage that, you'd better ensure that he lives in a state of wickedness for as long as possible. These are the kinds of circumstances in which I think rhetoric has some use. I can't see that it's any particular use to a person with no criminal intentions. Maybe it's no use at all in that situation. Nothing came up in the previous discussion to make us think it is. In exasperation, Callicles joins the fray. He cannot believe that Socrates seriously holds these revolutionary views. Socrates replies in metaphorical language that he is certainly voicing his inner convictions and contrasts this with the worldly Callicles' obligation to voice only what accords with the changing whims of the populace. Callicles locates Polus's mistake as conceding that doing wrong is more disgraceful than suffering it. He claims that this view is merely a conviction designed by the weak to suppress the strong, and argues that might is right by natural law. Socrates' aberrant views, he claims, are due to the overindulgence in intellectual pursuits rather than worldly experience. Callicles ends his long and famous speech with a prophetic warning that if Socrates ever finds himself in court, his impracticality will leave him incapable of defending himself. Callicles. Callicles. Tell me, Chirophon, is Socrates serious or is he having us on? Chirophon. I think he's perfectly serious, but there's nothing like asking the man himself, Calicles. All right, I'd certainly love to do that, Socrates. May I ask you a question? Are we to take it that you're serious in all this, or how are you having us on? You see, if you're serious, and if what you're saying really is the truth, surely human life would be turned upside down, wouldn't it? Everything we do is the opposite of what you imply we should be doing. Callicles So if there weren't any are- fuck Socrates Callicles if there weren't areas of overlap within all the individual variety of human experience If a person's experiences were private and couldn't be shared by others, it wouldn't be easy to communicate one's own experience to anyone else. I say this because I have an idea that you and I do in fact share an experience, that of having two loves each. I love... Alcibiades, the son of Clonaeus, and philosophy, and your two loves are the Athenian populace and Demas, son of Perlampolis. Now, you're terribly clever of course, but all the same I've had occasion to notice that you're incapable of objecting to anything your loved ones say or believe. You chop and change rather than contradict them. If in the assembly of the Athenian